If you brought a copy of the Bible with you, you can find Ezra chapter four. And I should probably just say something as we get going. I don't, ever, I don't assume everybody brings a copy of the Bible with them. In fact, a lot of you don't because you're using your devices and we do put the scripture up on the screens. But we do reverence this book at Sailorville Church. And I say that because we don't, we don't shy away from every passage in the book. We, we take the Bible very, very seriously. And the Apostle Paul told us in the New Testament that all scripture is profitable. And th- what that really means is all scripture is profitable, okay? So we don't have to run away from anything, okay? I, I think I need to throw that little, that little encouragement, caveat, call it what you will, as we get into this uh, message today. God help us fight our enemies, And that said, Ezra chapter four. So if you make your way there, that'd be great. So just last week, it was a very moving morning. In all three of our services, the the steps were filled with people kneeling and confessing and returning to God. Remember, Zachariah says, return to me, God says, and I will return to you. And by droves, many of you did both publicly and many of you did privately. It was a beautiful thing. If you did so, it's all good now, right? You know better, right? If I've learned anything in my walk with God, it is this. Whenever I take a stand for God, Satan will take his stand against me. As you've heard me say many times, where there's a door, there's a demon. Where there's opportunity, there's opposition. And when we left off in our study of Ezra, if you'll recall, when we left off, great things were happening. The first returnees arrived under Zerubbabel. They, the altar was, uh, was uh, uh, we got this a little bit ahead of time, but this is what happens at the very end of, of uh, chapter three, where when there's, they put the altar, they lay the foundation of the temple, and there's this explosion of praise and clapping and praising the Lord. Most of the young people couldn't believe it. The temple was going to get built, and all the old codgers were complaining and crying because it wasn't going to be as grandiose as the last time. Remember that? And that's the last slice of the last chapter. And the sound was heard far away. Far enough, by the way, that the ears of the enemy perked up and Soon enough, they showed up on the scene. And so just mark this down. Opposition will rise up at the exact time you stand up for God. Mark it down. So with that in mind, Ezra chapter four, just the first five verses for now. Now when the adversaries, that means enemies of Judah and Benjamin, heard that the 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 returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, by by, by the way, it tells you about who these individuals actually were. But anyway, we'll get back to that too. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in the building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then, that's, this is their response, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid. 
to build and bribed counselors or advisors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so the year in this moment is 536 BC, okay? And I want you to tighten your thinking caps for a few moments here, okay? The book of Ezra can be confusing to a reader because Ezra himself doesn't even appear until the seventh chapter. And wait for it, that's 70 plus years later, okay? So I wanna, I wanna show you, here's a little simple, the simplest outline you'll ever see for Ezra, okay? First, the first six chapters is the first return. We're there right now, okay? It's under Zerubbabel, that name that you have for your next kid. And, uh, and the temple foundation is laid, the foundation of the temple, not the temple itself, not the superstructure, but the foundation is laid. The outline is there, okay? And again, it's 536 BC. Here's the second half of Ezra, chapter seven through 10. That's the second return. Ezra shows up, it's 70 years later, and he, he restores the spiritual life. And notice the date, 458 B.C. The first return under Zerubbabel, Ezra wasn't even born. And yet Ezra wrote Ezra. That shouldn't surprise you. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Last I checked, he wasn't around at creation. Right? So in chapter 7 through 10, when Ezra finally does appear, it's 78 years later. And Nehemiah who builds the walls. Remember, we think of Ezra and Nehemiah as contemporary. He doesn't show up for another 10 years, like 444 BC. All of you that are all about numbers, you're eating this up, the rest of you are going, boring. I get it. But the reason this is important, because the verses that follow, I'm not gonna read them all. You can read them, I'm going to sort of summarize them for you. Verses six through 23 are parenthetical. They're meant to illustrate Ezra's point, and here's the point, Israel's entire history has involved enemy, constant, incessant enemy opposition. Ezra, in verses six through 23, what he does is he momentarily, listen to this, he momentarily leaves the current time period, 536 B.C., and tells or illustrates how down through the years, down through the decades, in his case, Israel's enemies have constantly opposed them. In fact, if you look at verse six, it, 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 says, it says, in the reign of Azuerus, that's another king, not Cyrus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an act, that is the enemies wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem, verse seven. In the days of Artaxerxes, another king, and the bad guys are mentioned here. They wrote, a, they wrote a, yeah, you don't want me pronouncing their names either, but the point is, in fact, if you look all the way down to verse 12, this is really kind of interesting. In verse 12, it tells us, it tells us that these people wrote a letter to the king against the Jews and says, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from, from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the what? The walls, the walls wouldn't be built for over 90 years from this current text. That's the point. 
okay? So just to kind of, this is kind of sort of a chronological thing here. So, so then, if you go all the way down to verse 24, the very last verse in this chapter, Ezra picks up, he picks up the narrative, goes back to the beginning, goes back to where we were in those first five verses, and he says, then the work on the house of, the, of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. So, uh, so, so let, me, let, me, let me help you by illustrating it like this. It would be, this would be like me telling you uh, uh, about how Israel became a nation in 1948. Remember that? A lot of you know that. That's, that's like astounding, all right? It'd be like me telling you about all the events that occurred when Israel became a nation in 1948 and all of the opposition of the Arabs that were all around trying to push them into the sea. It was amazing that they survived. And then, and then me pausing because it's 2023, right? It's not 1948, okay? Almost the time frame fits as well here, by the way. It's like me pausing and showing you how the opposition to Israel has, has, has continued. It, it continued in, uh, in 1956. It continued in the Six-Day War of 1967. It continued in the War of Yom Kippur in 1973. And on and on, up to the present hour, Israel's enemies hate them. And then, going back, as I was saying, in 1948, see what I'm saying? Then, then going back, that's, that's the idea here. And if that doesn't make any sense, please don't tell me, because I really worked hard to get that down. <laughs> but here again, here again, is Ezra's point of application. When you take a stand for God, Satan will take his stand against you. Mark it down. That's why we must fight. Verse one, these individuals are called adversaries. You see that? That word literally means foes or enemies. And who were these enemies? Who were these? That were, they were left in the land. Remember, when Nebuchadnezzar you know, many years earlier in 586 BC had taken the inhabitants of Judah to Babylon captive. That would be during the days of Daniel, okay? Uh, when he did that, he, the, the land wasn't vacant. It still had inhabitants. They weren't, let's just put it this way, they weren't the cream of the crop, okay? They were the lowlier servants, the, the best, the most, the highly esteemed, uh, the intellectual, the theologians, the smartest people he took with him. And uh, he left sort of the lower end of the spectrum there. And then you have Assyria, who had, he, and that's mentioned here, Esarhaddon, you may, he's mentioned there, he, he actually dumped all the Assyrians into that area. So for that 70-year captivity, that is while the children of Israel are in Babylon, meanwhile, back in Israel, there are people living there. They would become to know, known in the New Testament as the Samaritans, the half-Jews, they intermingled. They were Jews who intermingled with Assyrians, and they didn't just intermingle with them physically, they intermingled with them spiritually. And so it became sort of a cultic, syncretistic religion. Syncretism, when you take your faith and somebody else's faith, you just sort of blend them together. In fact, look, look at 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33. This is, this is how, this is how, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. Look at that. You should underline that in your Bible. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations among whom they had been carried away. 
So there's your explanation for what was going on back in Israel, okay? And if it sounds strange, if that sounds strange to you, serving God and serving idols, it shouldn't because some of you are doing it right now. You're struggling right now. You're attempting to live a life that honors God because you know that's a, that's a good thing to do, amen? While, while honoring the gods of money and materialism and sex and entertainment and self. Just the other day, I was talking with a young man who had come to Christ in recent days, and he was in that. He, he said, I literally worship myself. And he said, let me tell you something, Pastor. It doesn't work. His guilt and your guilt, if that's you living with the, in this juxtaposition, in this syncretistic life where you want to honor God, and you're, you're also honoring the gods of our culture right now, because the culture is dominating your life, it doesn't work. Your guilt will remain, your shame will remain, your lostness will remain, your loneliness will not go away until you find your rest in Jesus. That's what Augustine, the great theologian, said. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Can I get an amen? Syncretism doesn't work. It didn't work then. It doesn't work now. You want to know what does work for the enemy, that is? You know what works for the enemy? Threats. Threats. And that's why... Ezra illustrated the enemy's success record stopping the progress of God's people down through the years in those verses 6 through 23. And then he goes back to the time of where the story began. Uh, let's look at the last verse, by the way, since we, we might as well get our eyes on it. Again, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work of the temple ceased shortly after the foundation was laid in 536 BC. And sadly, it would remain that way, dormant, for 16 years until God would raise up a great preacher and prophet by the name of Haggai. It remained that way. It's, it's a little bit like churches today that, that sort of focus on the good old days. You ever been in one of those? Yeah, the good old days when we had revivals and people got saved. Yeah, how long was that ago? And your church is just sitting there dormant right now. Warren Worsby was right. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And what do you do on a battleground? You fight, that's what you do, amen? And again, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us, he tells Christians, fight the good fight of faith. Have you ever read that? Sure you have. By the way, a good fight, Paul says it's a good fight, so by saying so, he's implying there is a bad fight. Some of you get involved in too many bad fights. And for the record, I'm not against those of you 
who are politically oriented, your cultural warriors, you know, and you fight against the immoral issues of the culture. I'm for you. I think it's a great thing. But don't do that at the expense of the greater fight, which is called here a good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. So here is for the balance of our time, God help us. That's the title of our series, right? God help us fight. Here's the first thing you ought to fight. Fight compromise with conviction. We live in the greatest arena of compromise the church has ever known. And it's had a lot of compromising times. Today, the culture seems to drive the church and its theology rather than the other way around, isn't it? Shouldn't it be the other way around? What we believe should drive our, our, the way we live, the way we act, the way we think. But too many of us, because we don't esteem this book, this, this book isn't being uh, sort of inculcated into our hearts and minds because it's not, you start to capitulate. You give in to the culture. God never, it's like Moody said, the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it, amen? I just thought of that. I should write it down for the next service. But as I, as I look at this, our fight, our fight, our fight must be unified. If you look at verse three, it's, I love this. This is after these guys come, they, you know, they, it's, it's a disingenuous, oh, hey, hey, we let us build with you. And we worship God like you do. And in verse three, here's what it says. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's house in Israel said to them, and then he, they, make their declar- but I, they make their declaration. But what I, what I want you to notice, it's not just Zerubbabel. He's the leader. But Jeshua, the priest, gets involved, and the other heads do as well. The response to their enemies came from all corners of Jewish leadership, which I love. That's a unified front. That's the way our fight should be. Just the other day, a recent visitor to Sailorville Church commented to us their appreciation that no one preacher totally dominates the pulpit. And I say amen, don't you? It used to be that way many years ago, but it, it really illustrates the truth that our, of our conviction that a Christ-honoring church should be elder-led. And the, there's congregational benefit. The benefit to the congregation, that is, is the comfort. That's you, the comfort. Your comfort of knowing that major decisions are not arbitrarily made. They're not made by one person, but a collection of godly men and women, we, 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 we bring in the collective wisdom of what God is doing in our church, though the men lead. Secondly, our fight must be de- decisive. We're talking about fight, compromise with conviction. We have to be men and women of conviction and not compromise. As such, our, 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 our fight should be decisive. Notice again at the end of verse three, when they respond as, as one, you have nothing to do with us in the building of a house to our God. Very strongly stated, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and company saw through the disingenuous ploy of the Samaritans. And Sailorville Church has declared its dependence on God and his people and independence from outsiders regarding our beliefs, regarding our practices, 
And regarding things like building and remodeling, we don't go outside and borrow money. I'm not saying if somebody else does it, we shouldn't condemn them, don't. But we have sought the Lord's leading to be dependent on him, amen? Without compromise. This is what John tells us in 3 John 7. You can pick any chapter you want. He says, and they went out. These are the missionaries. They went out um, for the sake of the name, watch this, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Have you ever read that? So it's a decisive move. So I'm just saying, followers of Jesus, if indeed you are, and I don't assume that all of you are, but if you are, fight compromise with conviction. Secondly, fight your enemy as a conqueror, right? I mean, in in verse three, again, when they make their declaration, they they don't just say, you're not gonna help us build, but but we'll do it alone. And then at the very end of verse three, he says, he, 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 he cites the permission that had been granted to them by Cyrus, and we've talked about this already. God led Cyrus to free the Jews to both return and rebuild. So they were, they they had that freedom, and you are, as a follower of Jesus, you need to face your enemies and fight them as a conqueror. You're already a conqueror, remember? And 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, here's the thing that causes us to overcome. It is our what? Anybody know? It's our faith. Our victory making us overcomers or conquerors is our faith. I couldn't help but think of that old hymn. Some of you older ones remember that old hymn? Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world, Right? That's what makes us victors. So Sayreville Church, face your enemy as a victor. And just the other day, I was at a, one of my coffee watering holes. And uh, I was out on the deck. It was a beautiful day, doing some studying. I looked up. I couldn't believe my eyes. I hadn't seen this guy for the longest years. And I, I immediately stood up. And, but I have to be honest. I'd be very, I mean... With all candidness, I was worried. This young man, about a half a dozen years ago, came to Christ through our ministry, wonderfully saved, super tenderhearted, on a great trajectory, and within weeks, literally weeks of his conversion, a series of circumstances overwhelmed him, not of his doing. I mean, they were so heart-wrenching. I can't describe to you what they are. I'd be giving this whole thing away if I did. It was so gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching. And eventually it sent him away. And I just wondered. And when I stood up and saw him, we started interacting. (laughs) He's an overcomer! He's thriving for Jesus Christ. He's living for Christ. And I looked at him and I said... You are a testimony with the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah indeed. We need to remind ourselves in this fight both who we are and whose we are. 
You are more than conquerors. Paul said in the book of Romans 8, verse 37, more than conquerors through him who loved us. So then you face those fears, your enemy, and you face your foe knowing that sometimes you'll have to work through your fears and maybe even in spite of them, but you do so as a conqueror of Christ Jesus. Thirdly, God help us fight the lies of man with the truth of God. Now you saw what happened when these guys got turned down. Notice right away, look at it again, verse four. Then the people, the Samaritans of the land, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed advisors against them to frustrate their purposes. The word discouraged, if you have an old King James, does anybody still use the old King James? But if you do, it says they weakened the hands. Actually, a very literal translation. And I really like that translation. It doesn't make sense to both. What? But, but isn't it true? It's a word picture of depression. When I'm down, when I'm heavy, when I'm hurting, when I'm super discouraged, I have to rally myself to do anything, don't you? Lift my hands, grab this, do that. It's why depressed people have a hard time even getting out of bed. And so these Samaritans, they had caused a real spirit of oppression, heaviness, discouragement. It, it says he made them afraid. The Hebrew word means to palpitate. It literally carries the idea of being terrified. They were shaking on the inside for fear. We're not told exactly how, but Ezra's future commentary that we alluded to here, verses 6 through 23, where he, he takes the next 70 years or so, tells us what they did. How did they cause the people of the land to be discouraged, to be fearful? In a word, through threats. Threats. You see, it says they bribed, literally the word means hired counselors or advisors. I got to think about this. Okay, the bad guys hired counselors against the people of Israel. That's how they beat them? I thought to myself, what would advisors use to frustrate God's people? What do all enemies do to frustrate God's people? They used, are you ready for it? Words. Words. We all know the power of words, do we not? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but that's a lie, and you know it. Words can lift us up. Solomon said it. A, a, a word spoken at just the right time. <sighs> How good it is, amen? Amen. Mark Twain said, I can live for two months on one good compliment. And I could too. Or they'll take us down. Again, Solomon said in chapter 15 and verse four, that harsh words can crush our spirit. Isn't that true? Think about what words can do to people, whipping people into frenzies. Hitler's demagoguery, remember that? Moving masses of people toward evil. Surely, Solomon was right again when he said, death and life 
are in the power of the tongue, the very thing nobody can control, amen? And words don't even, I mean, if you think about it, words don't even have to make sense to, mo- to motivate people. I was watching this documentary on John Madden. You remember John Madden, the great football coach for the Oakland, the Super Bowl champion Oakland Raiders, and even better known as a commentator for football for many years. He died recently. He, he was telling about how he whipped the Raiders into a frenzy before they went out. And, and he, goes, he goes, I'd heard this expression. I really liked it. He goes, I didn't even understand it, really. But I, I got him in the locker room, and I said, don't worry about the horse being blind. Just load the wagon. That doesn't even make sense. He goes, the, the players ran out on the field and won the game. Wow. Talk about the power of words and throw a personality in there with it. But when I witness the naivete of Christians and the garbage, the crap, and that's what it is, many of you swallow and believe by what you read on the internet, social media platforms, etc. I just, ugh! I think every one of us should have this These words written over our computer. These words right here. There they are. They're coming up. The gullible believe anything they're told. The prudent sift and weigh every word. Have you ever read that? You say, no, because it was was out of the message translation. But still, it's good. That that is the sense of the word. I I mean, this was written written a thousand years before Jesus. Human nature doesn't change. And some of you just believe it because somebody printed it. It's the dumbest thing in the world. Don't be dumb. How do we fight lies and misinformation? I'll tell you how. With truth, amen? With truth. Whatsoever things are true, Jesus has sanctified them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And the words of these enemies were causing them fear. In fact, in, 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 in verses four and five, the Hebrew tenses in the word uh, for uh, discouraged and fear, they're all participles. But all that means is they, these enemies were constantly discouraging, constantly frightening, and constantly hiring advisors to speak against them. In other words, whatever your enemy did successfully yesterday, he'll do it again tomorrow. And if it didn't work the day before, it doesn't mean, the enemy doesn't go, well, that didn't work, I'm not gonna try that again. Uh Uh-uh. Remember Jesus? Tempted the perfect man, the perfect man, the God man. Tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And Luke's gospel puts a little addendum that a lot of us haven't read. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus, and there it is, to try it again later on. And speaking of Jesus being tempted, how did Jesus respond? One, two, three times with, it is written. Jesus relied on the truth of God by quoting Old Testament truth I mean, if Jesus was relying on truth, how much more should we, right? So, fight. Fight the lies of man with the truth of God. And finally, fight the fear of man 
in the fear of God or with the fear of God. Maybe in would be a better word here. Verse 24, the very last verse again. Fight the fear of man in the fear of God. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year. And some of you are probably thinking, where is, where is them fearing God in the story here? It's not. That's the point. Sadly, the fear of man fueled the enemy of God, and they prevailed. The work on the temple, that outline of the temple, the foundation laid, the thing they were cheering and praising the Lord about last week, right? Chapter three. Sat just like that for 16 years, exactly. From 536 BC to 520 BC, nothing. Oh, not really nothing. The people of the land did well. They built beautiful homes. They lived off the land. They became successful. The temple sat dormant. Until God raised up a great preacher by the name of Haggai who said, what are you doing living in luxury? Get up and build my house. And they did but that would be 16 years. Haggai, the spirit of God through Haggai, the prophet, stirred Zerubbabel and Jeshua and all the heads of the houses and everyone, in fact, to stop staring in fear at their enemies and start looking to God. And that's when it changed. And that's when it will change. Everything changes when that happens, when you stop looking at your enemies. Because some of you, are just, that's what you do. You just stare at the things that are detracting you. Your enemy. Your enemy could be just anybody. who could, Somebody in your life, you can't keep your eye off of them. And that's your problem. Get your eye off of them. One of the great icons of this last century in Christianity was Charles Stanley, Dr. Charles Stanley. Many of you came to know and love him, listened to his Simple but powerful sermons. What a man of God. Lived a great long life and had a very productive ministry. He died at age 90 a week ago. He lived through a lot. And he told the story of being super discouraged when he was a young pastor in his 30s. A lot of enemies were coming after him, saying things because words are so powerful, right? Threats were hanging over him. And he went and visited a widow in her 70s who had invited him over to his, her house. And she, he went there and he just began to divulge his woes. And she walked him over to one of the classic pictures I'm sure many of you have seen that was on the wall. And she said, look at this picture. What do you see? By the way, Daniel was a contemporary and he would have been old. Remember we said when Cyrus, he was the one who probably told Cyrus, hey, you're in the Bible. <laughs> but here he is in the lion's den. She, the lady said, um, uh, what do you see here? And Stanley said, I was looking at everything, you know. I'm looking at those lions and their faces. And the lady said, look at Daniel. What is he doing? And in that moment, Stanley realized Daniel wasn't looking at his enemies. 
He was looking to God. And Charles Stanley said, that made all the difference in my life. His whole life became a, a life of obedience to God, not worrying what his detractors and his enemies were doing. Some of you in this room need to be like Daniel because you're not even a Christian. You've got all things around you that are bothering you, your sins, the things that have alienated you from God. Look to God. Another great preacher, a generation before Stanley, was Charles Spurgeon. As a young boy, was in a Methodist chapel one day. Some stump preacher gets up and preaches from Isaiah, where it says, look to me, look to me and be saved. And that's what the preacher looked at Charles Spurgeon and said, young man, you look miserable. How would you like to have somebody say that? You want me to go around and start reading your faces right now? And somebody said, no. That's funny. I won't. But that preacher did. He said, young man, you look miserable. Look to Jesus. And he did, and he was saved. And a whole generation of people in England were converted as a result. Some of you need to look to Jesus right now to be saved and believe that he died for you and rose again for your sins. And many of you need to get your eyes off the lion's And like Daniel, look to God and fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, that's our prayer. May you be honored. May you help us in our fight to fight a good fight. Some of us have compromised. Forgive us for that. Help us, Lord, to come back and be people of real conviction, Lord. And Come up against the the fears we have of men and see you in a greater, greater way. We pray all these things, Lord, asking your blessing upon us that you would do your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.